The old pilot's plain tales. Go ahead, take the controls. There's a small line in the operations manual of my airline and, I'm sure, a similar regulation in other airlines, which states that only a qualified pilot may occupy the pilot's seat during flight. To some, this may appear an unnecessary rule. After all, who would ever let someone else occupy that seat during a flight? And even if they did, what could possibly go wrong? I'm sure that some of us who have spent enough time in the industry can remember a time when we might have seen that rule being broken with perhaps a pretty young cabin crew member being given a few minutes in one of the pilot's seats just for fun. The trouble is that we are so used to the aircraft always being handled by competent pilots, it doesn't occur to us what might happen should someone, without any understanding of the consequences, accidentally move or select something that puts us in a position that, in our most dreadful nightmares, we didn't see coming. However, as safe and benign as it might seem to put a loved one into the pilot's seat, even just for a few minutes, disasters have followed such a situation. It was back in the 60s that NASA found a need for tracking and telemetry stations to be placed all around the world to provide an essential electronic link to its spacecraft. In places where the terrain was too remote or hostile to build ground-based installations, an airborne station filled the gaps, which became known as the Apollo Range Instrumentation Aircraft, Araya. Eight Araya aircraft were built by Boeing and designated the EC-135, which was itself a modified KC-135 derived from the precursor of the Boeing 707, the Boeing 367-80. The Dash 80 was used on demonstration flights and was fitted with Boeing's flying boom for air-to-air refueling which served as a prototype for the KC-135. The Araya aircraft were highly mobile and could operate worldwide to receive and retransmit the astronauts' voices as well as record telemetry. Eight of the original aircraft were redesigned as advanced-range instrumentation aircraft and on the 6th of May 1981, one was conducting its last ever flight out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base on a training mission before being retired. On board were 17 crew members and 4 passengers. The Air Force had just introduced a program to allow spouses to see firsthand the contributions that their loved ones made to the military, so aboard the aircraft, callsign Agar-23, was the wife of the pilot-in-command, Captain Joseph Emilio, and also the wife of Captain Fonk. The aircraft was cruising at Mach decimal 78 on a simple navigation leg with the autopilot engaged at flight level 290. The aircraft commander, Captain Emilio, who was also an instructor pilot, was sitting in the right-hand seat, and beside him in the left-hand seat 
was his wife Peggy. At the height they were flying, the weather was clear, with no turbulence or icing. Agar 2-3 had been working Martinsboro Low Sector Controller, but it had just been switched to Baltimore High Sector Controller. The last formal transmission from the aircraft was normal, with no indication of a problem. However, a minute or two later, a female voice was detected on the radio recording. Then, without explanation, the IFF, or ATC Transponder in civil parlance, stopped giving a signal, and no radio contact could be made. Nothing was ever heard of from Agar-23 again. The aircraft was seen emerging from a low overcast at around 2,000 feet in a 20 to 30 degree nose-down attitude at very high speed, probably around 400 knots. While still above a 1,000 feet, an explosion occurred in the fuselage which resulted in a break-up of the airframe, distributing the wreckage over a two-and-a-half-mile area. Tragically, all on board were killed. Emergency crews poured onto the scene, though they quickly realised no one could be saved. Vaughan Zimmerman, captain of the Wakesville Volunteer Rescue Company and one of the first to arrive, took charge until the military showed up hours later to investigate. Local fire companies put out a few small spot fires, but there was nothing to do but secure the scene and look for bodies. We just knew what we had to do, said Zimmerman, who directed emergency responders to mark the location of the body parts with rakes from the brush truck, tomato poles from the nearby farms, and even personnel if needed. We tried to add some dignity to it, marking and covering them up, and that type of thing, because it was just a horrible thing to have to witness, to see how people were torn up and mangled. That part of it will never get out of our minds. Brigadier General Robert Chapman led the investigation team and authored the report into the accident. He commented that the passengers were authorised to be on board. Of Mrs. Peggy Emilio's presence in a pilot seat, he merely remarked that there is no evidence that the presence of the passengers in the crew compartment contributed to or caused the accident. When the wreckage was recovered, it was discovered that the aircraft trim indicator showed full nose down and that the pitch trim motor and jack screw assembly had run to the full nose down position. The horizontal stabiliser, which is moved when trimming the aircraft out, is a powerful force in pitching the aircraft. And if it were to be positioned full nose down, the elevators wouldn't be capable of counteracting the force. It was this force that pitched the aircraft into a severe nose down attitude, but recovery would have been possible for about eight seconds had Captain Emilio acted quickly enough. However, the aircraft generators tripped off 
when under negative G for more than two seconds, so the alternating current electrical power to drive the trim motor back quickly would not have been available. Also, at some point, the trim cutoff switch had been activated, presumably to try and stop the trim from moving further. In order to manually move the stabilizer back to the neutral position, the trim wheel would need to be turned through 35 revolutions, a slow and laborious process. With the force of the stabilizer driving the aircraft into a dive, the speed would have increased rapidly, and when recreated in the simulator, once the aircraft was more than 30 degrees nose down, the speed above 350 knots, recovery was impossible. There was no evidence of a trim motor runaway, although such an event had resulted in the loss of a KC-135 and there was no explanation for Captain Emilio's failure to react to the out-of-trim condition in time. The brigadier stated that the pitch-trim motor moved for undetermined reasons. Furthermore, soon after the accident, Brigadier General Peter Ogdgers, at a press conference at Andrews Air Force Base, said that how that happened is unknown. I would have to say it was mechanical. However, in a subsequent court case concerning the accident, Boeing proposed an alternative hypothesis. It was contended that the pitchover may have been caused by Mrs. Emilio, seated in the left-hand seat, activating the trim switch on the pilot's control wheel instead of some other control, such as the intercom switch. Our accidental movement of the trim would have gone unnoticed since the autopilot would compensate by applying elevator pitch until, approaching full deflection, it reached its limits and disconnected. Placed suddenly in a negative G pitchover and with a major loss of electrical power, Captain Emilio would have struggled to move the trim back to where it should be since he was in the wrong seat to get easy access to the single trim wheel positioned on the other side of the centre console. As tragic as this accident was, it pulls into relative insignificance when compared to the second part of this tale. There were 63 passengers and 12 crew aboard an Aeroflot Airbus 310, wending its way gently from Moscow to Hong Kong in 1994. Most of the passengers were businessmen returning to Hong Kong and Taiwan after looking for investment opportunities in Russia. Once a year, Aeroflot allowed the pilots to take their family with them on a trip at a discounted fare, and on this day, the relief pilot, Captain Kudrinsky, had his two children with him, his young daughter, Jana, and his 15-year-old son, Eldar. Since the operating captain was on his break, there were five people on the flight deck. Captain Kudrinsky with his children, first officer Piskayov, and another pilot flying as a passenger, Vladimir Makarov. They were talking to Novosibirsk control and approaching Zikar when Captain Kudrinsky got out of his seat and let his 12-year-old daughter sit there in his place. Dad, raise me up, 
she said, so that she could see properly. The aircraft sorter pilot was engaged, and no one voiced any concerns at what was happening. While she sat there, her father pointed out stars and city lights, and warned her not to push any buttons. Then, no doubt excitedly thinking she was going to fly the airliner, her father adjusted the autopilot heading a few degrees to give her the impression that she was turning the aircraft. Fly the airplane a bit, he said. Hey, Yana, are you going to fly it? Go ahead, take the controls. A short while later, Kudrinsky let his son occupy his seat, who, like his sister, took hold of the control yoke. Let's get a picture of the pilot, said Eldar's father. You're taking a picture? Yes, I am. Kudrinsky showed his son the same manoeuvre that he had done for his daughter, before Eldar asked, Can I turn this, the control? Kudrinsky said, Yes. OK, watch the ground, where you're going to turn. Go to the left, turn to the left. After a few degrees of turn, Captain Kudrinsky turned the heading selector back to the right in order to regain his proper track, but his son continued to apply pressure to the control yoke. As the wings came level, the aircraft, receiving conflicting demands to the ailerons, triggered a torque-limiting device that mechanically declutched the autopilot from the lateral controls. The autopilot was still electrically active and connected to the pitch controls, but Eldar, a 15-year-old, was now controlling the aircraft in roll. The mechanical safety system that uncoupled the autopilot from the ailerons did not raise a warning to the pilots. However, the aircraft operating manual stated that Working against the autopilot is defined as an abnormal procedure and should be avoided, and the autopilot override is a safety mechanism that operates outside the boundaries of normal aircraft operations. If it is suspected that the aircraft is not behaving normally when the autopilot is in command mode, disengage the autopilot immediately. Warning. Do not attempt to correct the flight path by manipulating the controls if the autopilot is not disengaged. If Piskarev, an experienced pilot, had been the only one holding the controls, he could not have failed to feel the autopilot disconnect itself. But as it was, nobody noticed. With the aircraft uncontrolled in roll, it began to diverge and the right wing slowly dropped. It was happening at a rate too slow for the inner ear to detect, so it went unnoticed through 20 degrees towards 45 degrees of bank. At the same time, the pitch channel of the autopilot was trying hard to keep the aircraft level, and as the bank increased, it applied more and more pitch control force to keep the aircraft at the same altitude. Kudrinsky was busy with his daughter when Eldar said, Why is it turning? 
It's turning by itself, asked his father. Yes. The pilots discussed the problem and thought the aircraft might be entering a holding pattern. But with the auto thrust increasing power maintain speed and the bank continuing to increase, the autopilot completely disengaged. At 50 degrees of bank and 1.6 G, the aircraft began to buffet and stall. At any point, had First Officer Piskayov intervened, he could have salvaged the situation, but his seat was pushed far back, and he was obviously also unaware of the increasing angle of bank. It was probable that his difficulty in regaining control was compounded by fighting Kudrinsky's son, who was also moving the yoke. With 90 degrees of bank and the nose 40 degrees below the horizon, the aircraft reached 400 knots, and at last pitching up, Piskayov hit the elevator backstops, reaching more than 4.7 g and exceeding the aircraft structural limit. He closed the throttles, and to quote the accident report, under the emotional stress of the situation, pitched the aircraft steeply upwards with no power coming from the engines. At this point, Kudrinsky got his son out of the left seat, but in doing so, the rudder was deflected, and with the speed low, the nose high, and ailerons and rudder left, the Airbus was being forced into a spin. The aircraft rotated rapidly, the nose dropped, and although eventually Kudrinsky was able to stop the rotation, they didn't have enough height left to prevent the aircraft from impacting into a remote hillside amongst the Kuznetsk-Alantau mountains. There were no survivors. In both of these cases, allowing a loved one to play at being a pilot may not have directly caused the accident, but it certainly put the handling pilot at such a disadvantage that they were unable to understand what had gone wrong and how to quickly correct the problem. The design of the aircraft undoubtedly made things worse. Had either the EC-135 or the A310 been equipped with warnings that indicated the movement of the trim or the declutching of the autopilot that these crews encountered, the chances are things would have gone much better for them. However, neither accident would have happened had the pilots just kept their seat. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.